Good morning, church. I I worshipped, I witnessed, (laughs) I witnessed a very beautiful thing at the end of this week, and I, I just thought I would share without going into too many details, though I suspect many of you will know, um, what I watched at the end of this week was an event that perhaps uh, made me uh, very proud and thankful to be one of the shepherds of this congregation. As I saw our elders, our staff, and our congregation work together in a crisis care situation to provide coordinated and concerted care to one of our congregants in need in very short notice. And I want to thank you and I want to praise the Lord and rejoice in the work that he did. Um, We had many opportunities available through this upcoming week to serve. Every one of those opportunities as of yesterday afternoon was filled. Praise the Lord. So we're thanking him this morning, and I'm thanking uh, him for every one of you, whether it was through prayer, whether it was through a meal, whether it was through a visit, uh, whether uh, our elders who were flexible enough to move their meeting and then help us coordinate care through a care agency uh, in a very uh, quick moment's notice, or our staff who helped administrate all the details and pull all the details together. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for that work over the last 48 hours. Last week, we talked about leading in our weakness. And we talk about leading in our weakness. I had asked some of you, or all of you, I'd given an assignment and asked that you would take some time this week and consider how the Lord may be working in and through your weakness. And believe it or not, some of you reached out to me after last week's message and you shared with me whether it would be related to something in your parenting, whether it's something in your career or your marriage or community life or even the faith community here at CNBC. The truth is that each of us have an area in our lives or perhaps multiple areas in our lives where we are feeling weak and inadequate. Some of us have been called into a deeper and fuller place related to boasting in our weakness. Now, I was with one of our congregants this week who I believe exudes this, and many of you know, and and he gave me permission to share. Many of you know Wade Schaefer. He gave me permission to share one of his takeaways from last week's sermon. I can't think of a person who boasts in his weakness for the glory of God more effectively than Wade Schaefer. Listen to what he said, quote, I'm thankful for a homemade Sunday. Some earthward drops from the sky made this day pretty easy to handle. Comfortable on my Archie bunker after my early morning shots, what I gleaned from the church service probably was different than what most people fished out of the preacher's words. Strength from our weakness. Wow. Some of the things that I could never have done before when I thought I was as strong as anybody, I can do now even though I can barely get out of my own way. The Lord has a way of turning this weak, sick-filled body into one that people get the most out of. My walking days are shot. 
My Popeye arms of yesterday are olive oils of today. But some say that I'm the strongest person they know. I'm just drinking the sour lemonade that the Lord has sweetened with his touch in this lemon of a body that I have now. End quote. And we talk about boasting in our weakness. This is it. God's pattern is to turn what the world perceives as weakness into strength. Those who are in Christ and recognize this as we boast in our weakness, we come to find that there is something of great significance that is available to us. God has a way of using the adversity of our weakness to sharpen and mature us for further ministry. And Paul will now turn his attention to the mature in the text and their source of real wisdom. As he moves into this next section in our text, five questions emerge. And those are the questions that we will spend our time addressing and unpacking today. You want to take your Bibles and go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, today we're going to be in verses 6 to 16. Here are the five questions that Paul will address. Who are the mature in Christ? What does real wisdom look like? How do we come to know this real wisdom? Why have we been given the Holy Spirit? And what does it look like to have the mind of Christ? Before we seek to answer these questions, let's pray and ask Jesus to help us. Lord, we are thankful to be part of a congregation in action. You put an opportunity before us, Lord, this week, and we rejoice that that opportunity has been met, that many have risen to the occasion, that there's been prayers, there's been visits, there's been meals. Lord, your work is taking effect and having effect on our lives. And for that, we are thankful. We gather around your word again today in this corporate activity of study. And we know that it is a living and active text that you intend to change, to use to change us. And use us uh, to accomplish the work that you have for us this week. And so, Lord, we pray that as we go to your word this morning, that indeed you would be working in our hearts and in our minds, challenging us, motivating us, and moving us from beyond these walls to the people that you'll place in our lives this week. And may we live all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 
For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul begins here by redirecting his focus. It's important that he does this because he spent much of the previous chapter and early in this chapter talking about foolishness and weakness. Yet for those of us who sit here gathered together this morning who are in Christ, we know that there is so much more available to those who are in Christ. For the mature, there is something of eternal worth and value in the message of Christ and the cross. There is, as Paul would put it, real wisdom available. But an important question emerges before we can understand who receives this wisdom. Who receives the immeasurable riches of God's wisdom? And the answer is the mature. And so the question is, who are the mature? Who does Paul have in view as he writes this section of the letter? In verse 6, Paul says, yet among the mature. He's not talking about an elite class of spiritually minded people. He isn't talking about Christians who have a greater amount of knowledge for later he'll affirm that knowledge actually puffs up. And next week we'll come to find that more knowledge was not what the Corinthian church needed. The answer to the question of who the mature are is answered by, by Paul in three places in this text. The first clue we see in verse 7 with Paul's use of the word are, O-U-R, before glory. Paul is using this word are to once again show that this wisdom is commonly available to all true believers. The second reference alerting us to the identity of who the mature are is at the end of verse 9. At the end of verse 9, Paul references, for those who love him, directing our mind back to God. And then a third and final reference at the end of verse 13, those who are spiritual. The mature, those who receive true wisdom, are all who are truly in Christ. And in this text, Paul is going to contrast the mature with the natural later in verse 14. Paul has the church in view here, friends. Those who are in Christ are the mature. That would include many of us who are gathered here today, whether in the building or 
whether you're with us online today. Now, there are some who are in Christ who are more mature in their faith than others. That is true, yes, but Paul is going to address those distinctions later on. So if the mature that Paul has in view here are the church, then what is the nature of the wisdom that is available to the church? What are the qualities of that wisdom? Or what is real wisdom? And again, we can draw a few conclusions from Paul's words here. First, Paul says in verse 6 that real wisdom is wisdom that can be imparted. Yet still, in verse 6, he separates the wisdom that he is imparting from the wisdom of this age. They're different. And I want you to, again, with me, because the context of this letter is vitally important from the beginning to the end of the letter. And I want you to, again, reflect on the context, the cultural context, in which Paul is ministering in this time. On one hand, you have Rome. And perhaps in all of world history, there was never an empire greater than the Roman Empire. And then on the other hand, you have Judaism. And perhaps in all of world history, that there's, there's never been a, a higher or more refined religious system than Judaism. Yet, what the disciples had witnessed was this. The world's most elite religious system at the time, partnering with the world's most powerful empire to crucify our Messiah, Jesus. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end of the way is death. And Paul concludes at the end of verse 6 that the wisdom and rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. Indeed, they had crucified Jesus. This is the wisdom that had conspired to kill the Messiah. And friends, it's still present in the world today. It's a wisdom that dismisses God's word and God's ways in favor of popular opinion and the world's ways. It's a wisdom that grabs and clings to earthly empires and shiny, crowd-pleasing crowns and medals. It's a wisdom that relies on human strength and human effort. It's a wisdom that elevates self-preservation over self-sacrifice. A wisdom that values pride above humility, division above unity, and divisiveness above peaceable living among one another. It's a wisdom that fails to recognize the work of God in this world. But friends, to those who believe, there is wisdom available that is as expansive as eternity itself. Look at verse 7. The wisdom that Paul and his associates were imparting is described in verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Wow. 
We talk a lot about the glory of God. But what Paul is saying here, this wisdom that was given before the ages. For our glory. He then confirms in verse 8 that no rulers of this age understand it. For if they had, they never would have crucified the Lord. The kind of wisdom that Paul is talking about is a wisdom that has an eternal quality. It's a wisdom that's been decreed before the ages. It's a wisdom given for our glory. Or wisdom related to our eventual glorification. To the unbelieving world, it is a hidden or secret wisdom. They do not understand it. Proverbs 25 verse 2 comes to mind. Some of you know it. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, to search out a matter, is the glory of kings. Lowercase k. Our culture, our world says, study hard. Work harder in the books. Attain many degrees. Acquire more knowledge. Be smarter. Learn more. That's not how this wisdom works. This wisdom is different than the wisdom of the ages. The wisdom of God is concealed. It's hidden away from the unbelieving world. What we see in verse 9 is that the supernatural wisdom is only revealed to certain people. Of people that Paul would define as those who love him. Look at verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The unimaginable wisdom that has been prepared for those who love God has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we might summarize the qualities of this wisdom as Paul has described it. The wisdom that Paul describes is an eternal wisdom set within the purposes and plans of God. It is a wisdom that cannot be discovered or searched out by the unbelieving world, but rather it is a wisdom that is wholly revealed in the person of Jesus to those who love God. Which leads us to a third question. That Paul is going to address in the text. How do we come to know this wisdom? How do we come to know it? If this wisdom from God has been revealed in Jesus. Then we will soon see that it is applied to believers today. By the helper sent from Jesus. Who is the Holy Spirit. And so we witness here very beautifully in this text how all three parts of the Trinity are involved in the dissemination of this wisdom. First, it is wisdom that has always belonged to God. It is his to give. It's been his for eternity. Second, God reveals his wisdom to the world in the person of Jesus. The world rejects the wisdom of God and crucifies Jesus. But before Jesus ascends to the Father, he promises to send a helper, capital H. One who would continue the ministry of revealing and applying God's wisdom to mankind. Paul says it this way in verse 10. Take a look. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even 
the depths of God. Only Jesus and the Holy Spirit could reveal the things of God because as God, they were the only ones fully attuned to the mind of God. Wouldn't it be nice for us to fully know what each other were thinking? Careful what you wish for, right? Wouldn't you like to just be able to look at a person and see the cloud above their head? What they were really thinking or saying about you in that moment? There was actually a silly movie about this a number of years back. It was actually a Mel Gibson movie. I think the title was What Women Want. And he actually had this exact gift. Now, for, for us men, I would say I think we should be careful what we wish for. <laughs> I don't think uh, being able to always know everything that Sheila was thinking about me would be good for our marriage. Probably, probably more often than not, it wouldn't be. <laughs> I can't imagine what goes through her mind. <laughs> Why is he doing that again? <laughs> Never works out for him. <laughs> The truth remains that unless I reveal to you what I am thinking or openly share with you what I am thinking, you can never truly know. I can't look at you and know your thoughts any more than you can look at me and know my thoughts. Yet, one of the failures of love is that we tend to do that to one another. We tend to look and assume we know what a person's thinking, rather than truly trying to find out on our own. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are perfectly attuned to one another. They understand each other perfectly and know each other's minds perfectly. The Holy Spirit is perfectly able to reveal this wisdom from God because He Himself is God. There is no mystery among the Godhead, about the plans of God. And this is one of the reasons that we ask the Spirit's help when we study the Scripture. This is one of the reasons we pray every Sunday before we open God's Word, because we need Jesus' help. We need the Spirit's help when we come to His Word to study, to discern, and to understand and make application with what's being said in our Word. We believe that he gives us exactly what we need in our personal and corporate reading and study and worship times in the scriptures. Paul says at the end of verse 11, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. He's the only one, friends. Paul then moves to remind us that this is the spirit that we have been given. Again, he is using the word we here to unite and show commonality amongst the believers. Take a look at verse 12. Now, we, those in Christ, that's us, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So we come to understand that wisdom from God is not earned or achieved through our effort or ability. Rather, it's revealed to us by God's spirit that we have been given. I mean, friends, if this was a 
If this was a thing that relied on the ability of man, what were fishermen doing? Walking with Jesus. They wouldn't have been considered among the most smart and knowledge-filled individual professions of their days. Yet there they were, right with Jesus. This is a knowledge and a wisdom that is revealed, not gained through work that we do. So why have we been given the Spirit? It's a question for which Paul has two answers in this text. There are other answers outside of this text as well, but we do not have time to cover those answers today. First, we've been given the Spirit that we might understand the things freely given to us by God, namely grace, love, and eternal life through Jesus. Imagine with me if I were to ask each of you to begin to list all of the things that you've been given in Christ. How many pages could we fill? If we just started that activity, if you went home today and you did that activity and you said, this week in my personal worship time, I'm going to take out paper and I'm going to make a list of all of the things I've been given in Christ Jesus. How many pages could you fill? In the course of a week. Could this building even contain them? The Holy Spirit, friends, one of the reasons it's been given is it's been given so that we might understand the richness of God's goodness and grace in our lives. The evidence is all around us, yet often we overlook it. We miss it. And how might we characterize the life of a person who understands all that they've been given in Christ? How might we characterize the life of that person? Think about it. If you took time this week and you recognized all the things in your life that you've been given by Christ, how might that affect the way that you live each and every day? What might be the defining characteristic Could it be gratitude? Would that be one? Great thankfulness. Abounding love, maybe. Steadfast mercy. Maybe unquenchable compassion. Maybe the Lord would use that to stir confident humility. Maybe there'd be long-suffering patience and endurance that springs up as you remember and reflect on all that you've been given in Christ Jesus. Maybe we'd be a little quicker to forgive, a little slower to become angry. Perhaps we'd be a peacemaking healer, a person who other people see with unshakable faith. Friends, we've been given the Holy Spirit so that we might comprehend the richness of all we have in God and then live out of the overflow of those riches. Riches that never run out. A treasure with no end in sight. The reality is, if we were to begin that list... In our lives, this week, it should never come to a stop as long as we are alive on this earth. For every breath from our mouths is truly a gift from God. Yet there's another reason that we've been given the Spirit. And Paul addresses it in verse 13. Take a look. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
We're not given the Holy Spirit, friends, to keep to ourselves alone. But we're given the Spirit so that we might impart, deliver, and share His truth with others. Church, this is big news. The good news is big news. It's not news that we're meant to keep to ourselves. Rather, following in Paul's example, we're to impart it and share it with those God draws into our pathways. Some who God brings into our lives, some will be spiritual. And they'll understand. You'll go, and and, and many of you experience this. You'll go to work this week, and you'll share about the realities of Jesus with somebody at your job and how Jesus has motivated you or given you the strength or the energy or the endurance or the capacity to withstand this or that. And somebody will say, amen, I love Jesus too, and I go to this or that church. But there will be others. There will be others that God draws into your life that will not understand. They won't recognize Some will be spiritual, but some, friends, as Paul describes in verse 14, will be natural. The natural will not understand. What remains is that we are to share with others this wisdom. We're not to keep it to ourselves. And it's not up to us to make somebody else believe that it's true. We know it's true. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Amen. Right? Mature believers who love God and have received wisdom from the Holy Spirit pertaining to all that we've been given in Christ share that good news with others. What does this look and sound like? I don't know how it might look or sound in your life. I'll give you an example. I had a student come to me one time. His parents were in a terrible situation. That They were fighting. He knew that their marriage was heading to a divorce. He was uncertain. He was very lonely. His behavior was starting to exude signs of understanding this trauma that was going on in his own home. And he was desperate. And he was looking for hope. And he didn't know how mom and dad could go to church every Sunday and say the things they did and live the way they did, yet go home and do what they were doing behind the closed doors of their home. And he was looking at Christianity and he was starting to grow rather jaded against it. It was messing with his faith. And he came to me one day and he said, how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you stand up there and say those things? Do you really believe them? Is that really true for you? Because I've grown up watching my mom and dad going to church with my mom and dad my whole life. And what they say on Sunday when I go home in in our home, it's not what they're saying behind closed doors. I want to know, is it real? Is it true? And I just looked at him and I said, it is true. It is real. And it's powerful. And I said, not only is it powerful for me, but it's powerful for you as a child of God. And as a child of God, there's enough power and there's enough wisdom available to you 
there's enough hope available to you and enough love available to you that no matter what happens with the relationship with your mom and your dad at home, Jesus can sustain you and he can carry you. He sustained me and carried me through difficult times in my life, times of hurt in my life. He can do the same thing for you. I don't know how it would look at work. Maybe you go to work and somebody comes up and they said, I can't do this anymore. I can't handle this person anymore or handle that person anymore. Friends, how we respond in those situations speaks volumes to the truth of what's going on in our hearts and our minds and how we've received the wisdom that we've been given in Christ. There's great wisdom available. Why we can control what we share and how often we share it, we cannot always control how it is received. And in that situation that I shared with you with that student, it was received very well. And things turned out very, very well. But there were other times in my life where I had similar conversations and it did not go that way. Sometimes the message will be received with gratitude. Other times it will be spurned, judged, criticized, dismissed. We're continue to share as the Lord reveals and brings opportunity where to continue to share. Friends, we live in a world that could be described as gluttons for knowledge, yet thirsting for wisdom. And we have message that, that Jesus describes as the living water that's able to quench the deepest thirst that there is. And we're called to share this living water. And we'll see next week that it is God who brings the increase. While the world appears to be unraveling all around us, God works through the message that he has given us to motivate within us the ability to live and speak with an unconquerable, quiet hope and confidence. Paul talks about this. Having this mindset makes us look and sound and even feel different as people. We, Church, we should be hope-filled, joy-filled, abounding in love, and the world should be taking notice. Jesus has had an effect. The Holy Spirit is alive and he's active. He's at work in and through us. People see, and because of that, they're drawn to us. This is an uncommon way to live today. Living as people of hope, abounding in love with great thankfulness. When's the last time you've seen that on any national news network? When's the last time you've seen that in any newspaper you've opened up? These are the major influences of our world and church. We are to look, sound, and feel different Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Here again, Paul's drawing a contrast between the mature, those who love God, who are the spiritual and the natural. The natural does not understand these things because they've not been revealed to them. Look at verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Hold on to that now. 
You're going to have to hold on to that one. Because when you go, when you are vulnerable, when, when you do step out, when you do share this good news, when you give a reason for the hope that you have, as we said, not everyone's going to receive it with gratitude and thankfulness. Sometimes they're going to push back. Sometimes they're going to get angry. Sometimes they may even get angry at you. They're going to criticize you. They're going to judge you. And what does Paul say? The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. As those in Christ, friends, we discern all things. We test them to see if they have a place in the scope of a Christian worldview or not. And in doing this, we inevitably will come to find that because of Jesus, we have a different perspective on the world than those who do not know Jesus. And we are not to concern ourselves or to let ourselves get bogged down or discouraged by the judgments of those who are not yet in Christ. And man, do I fail sometimes in this area. It's hard. It's hard to not get discouraged by the world. It is hard to live differently. It's hard to look differently. Being called out is not easy. This is why we say almost every Sunday, I hope, that we need Jesus' help every day of the week, every minute of the day. We need Jesus' help to do this. Because we can get bogged down. We can get discouraged. There's all kinds of diverging views and opinions outside of a Christian worldview out there that people chase after. Yet we have real hope to cling to. Something real to hold on to. There's a lot of hopelessness in our world. All seems lost, desperate. People are hurting and they're not only hurting, but because they're hurting, what are they doing? What do hurting people do? They hurt other people. This is what we see all around us. People who are hurting, 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 hurting. God says, I have a different way for you to live. I've revealed beautiful, true, endless riches of my wisdom to you in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's been applied to your life. Live in the light of that wisdom. Brokenness and decay surround us. Darkness, uh, it encompasses us. And we are called by Christ to be sought and light. Salt and light. And this is nothing new, friends. This wasn't new to the New Testament. Israel was also called to be salt and light to the surrounding nations. And in verse 16, Paul is going to drop back into the Old Testament and bring forth a fitting reminder from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was writing for Israel, and at the time that he was writing, all hope seemed lost. Israel was in captivity to this monster political and military empire known as Babylon. Babylon had reached the height of its empire. Israel was nothing in size or population compared to them. Yet God had a promise for them, and he would deliver. God promised to rescue his people from captivity and liberate them from the hands of their oppressors. But the people of Israel could not believe it. 
It seemed to them as if it were impossible. They were surrounded. They were enslaved. They were in captivity, held against their will. How could God break through in this situation? What did the wisdom of God look like for them today? Isaiah opens chapter 40 of his prophecy with comfort and a promise that God's word stands forever. Then, you're going to want to read this this week because you're going to love it. Isaiah 40, you've got to read it. You're going to love it. I'm telling you, you're going to love it. He moves into a long exposition on the greatness of God. And essentially, Isaiah is saying, look, the world is going the way that the world is going to go. Death and decay. God has overcome the world. Verse 9 of chapter 40, I have good news for you, Israel. Verse 10, God is coming with might. Verse 11, he's going to tend to his flock like a shepherd cares for his sheep. Then the verse that most scholars agree Paul is referencing found in verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? In other words, Israel, I know this doesn't look like it's making sense. I know it doesn't feel in your current situation that this could happen. But God is going to do this. Verse 15, the nations are but a drop in a bucket to God who accounts them as dust on the scales. Verse 28, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Verses 30 and 31, we all know this, we all love this. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Friends, Israel was growing weary in captivity to the Babylonians. Their hope and their strength was waning. Their minds needed renewal and transformation, a redirection back into God and his eternal purposes. And today, church, when we are living outside of these walls and functioning outside of these walls, we are in Babylon. We need this hope. We need this renewal. We need this redirection. We need to be reminded of God's faithfulness, of God's eternal wisdom and his eternal purposes revealed in Jesus. And Paul gives us an example at the end of verse 16 that will uphold us against the tides and forces of our time. How do we do this? How does this wisdom work for us today, church? It worked for Israel. It's working for us even now. How? Look at the end of verse 16. But we have the mind of Christ. A few weeks ago at prayer meeting. I love prayer meeting, by the way. If you haven't jumped in on prayer meeting Wednesday nights. Prayer meeting is like an oasis in the middle of a tumultuous week. And if you haven't jumped in, I would encourage you to jump in. It's just a beautiful time. Neil was sharing uh, a devotional about pursuing unity and peace within the body. And he shared a slide relating to the mind of Christ. 
Not only does having the mind of Christ help us persevere and endure the judgment that comes from the outside as we live differently in this world that we've been planted in. But having the mind of Christ, among other things, helps us to pursue peace and unity within the body as well. So what does it look like to have the mind of Christ? And the slide is, somebody will have to move it from the back, I guess. There it is. I'm sorry it's small. I thank Neil. I asked him if I could use this, and he said I could. But Neil was drawing some observations from Philippians where Paul encourages all believers to have the mind of Christ. And there are a few characteristics here of how that might look. It's a steadfast mind, friends. It's a loving mind. It's a humble mind. It's an unselfish mind. It's a developed mind. It's a guarded mind. And it's a musing mind. The mind of Christ. So how might our lives look in light of these realities as we live in this world? Believers trying to apply the principles and the ideals of the mind of Christ in our daily lives. We've been asking this gigantic question as we've studied this book together. How do we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as a church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? And Paul's simple answer to that question at the end of that text today is that we would have the mind of Christ. Church, can I encourage us to pursue this together? How different would we look in this world today? What might God do through his bride if she were pursuing the qualities that Paul draws out are related to the mind of Christ? Homework this week as our team comes. You're going to want to write it down. I'm not going to get in the habit of doing this, but the past few weeks it's just really lended itself. Homework this week, Philippians chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 will renew your mind and remind you of the eternal purposes of God and salvation. And Philippians chapter 2 will identify for you the qualities of what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. If you read those texts this week, I promise you'll be encouraged and edified through the study of God's word. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we are thankful that there is this eternal wisdom that's available to us. That it's your wisdom that's been with you. You have no beginning. It's eternal. That you revealed it to us in Christ and that you apply it to our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so now, Lord, the challenge is as we leave here today that we would truly dive into what it looks like to have this wisdom, to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus and to live this way in the world that you have planted us in. Truly, Father, your word tells us we are as sojourners or foreigners here on this earth. And for many of us, truly, we feel this way. We feel out of place and we need your help, Lord, every day. 
We need your help for wisdom to know how to have discussions. We need your help for wisdom to know how to serve and how to care for the people that you draw into our lives. We do not have all the answers, Father. Sometimes we are scared and fearful and we need for you to motivate within us the courage and the boldness. Sometimes, Lord, we're filled with anxiety. We worry about how our message might be received and we need to be reminded that no, no one from the outside world judges the spiritual. Who can bring a charge against your elect, Father? Jesus has been both just and justifier for us. So might you motivate within us the courage this week and the boldness to go and to share, to offer hope, to exude gratitude, to be abounding in love, to be quick to forgive, to show compassion and mercy and love. And might the aroma of our lives bring glory to your name as your spirit is at work in, through, and among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.